Romans chapter 8. It is the crowning jewel of all chapters in the Bible. And as we jumped into it two weeks ago, we got to the very, very good news that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so as we thought about this, that there's a new status as believers in Christ, that even though uh, we struggle with the flesh, as, as uh, Paul was leading up to this chapter, that what I want to do, I don't do, and how who will free me from this body of death, I know that I'm justified, I know that I'm saved, I know that I can stand before God, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, but yet I still struggle in this walk as a Christian. And so what must I do here? And he says, listen, I want you to know that there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. You are no longer condemned. And I don't know if you remember, but we had a picture of a condemned house that we put up on the screen. And, and the fact that that house is, is dilapidated, it's, it's unlivable, it's, it's unsanitary, and it's inadequate as you look at it. But Christ has purchased that And if your life feels like you are condemned, if you feel like you're dilapidated, if you feel like you're unsanitary and inadequate, let me tell you something. Jesus Christ has purchased you with his blood, and he wants to move his Holy Spirit into your life and make you a temple of the living God. And that is a beautiful picture. And so if you are in Christ, listen, you are no longer dilapidated. You're regenerated. He is working in your heart. If you are in Christ, you are no longer unsanitary, but you have been washed clean. If you are in Christ, you are no longer inadequate, but he has a purpose for your life and for his kingdom. Amen? And so this is what we got to fall into, that this is the way that Christ sees those who are his, and that's how a church responds to those who are his. That even when sin would rear its ugly head and it would come back into our lives and we would fall and we would feel like we have fallen into ruin, that we would feel like we are impure and unsanitary, if we would feel that we are insufficient for his use, he whispers to us through his indwelling spirit, you are mine. And I purchased you with a very high price. What a beautiful understanding of grace. He's a good and gracious king. I've got more good news. Believer, you have a new standard. We then shifted as as we looked at Romans chapter 8, verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So now the new standard of life is to set your mind on the things of the Spirit and not to be continually putting your mind on the things of the flesh. And this is the shift as we walk in sanctification, that now I need to constantly keep my mind on the things of the Spirit. And as we do that, there are times when we fall. There are times when we struggle. There's times when we blow past the wrong way signs that we keep seeing. Wrong way. You're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. But God allows us in his sovereign, his sovereignty, he allows us to sin. And I think he does that so that we can truly see how depraved we are and how holy he is. Because it is when we realize that we are not good enough in our own goodness and our own religion that we will turn to him and say, I need you. I need a good and gracious king who forgives me and sees me for who I truly am. You know, as we now shift into the next part of this chapter, we're going to put a dent in it. Yeah, we're going to put a big dent in it. Um, We now get the assurance of our new status. And we're going to get the assurance of how to apply the new standard as we see that we are filled with a new spirit and we are, we are now new 
in, in sonship. We have, been, we have inherited and we have been adopted into the family. And so there's assurance that comes along with that. Uh, one of the greatest things as being a parent, many of you know, is when your kids call you daddy and mommy, right? It's just so sweet when they're little daddy, mommy. And that turns into dad, 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 what? Can I have a snack? It turns into that. But like early on, it's really sweet. Like it's really cute. Um, and so some of you know like the, 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 the sweet relationship that that is of a child crawling up in your lap and just looking at you as you're the one that I can go to at, at any moment. A few weeks ago, uh, side note, we had, we had two little girls that got to stay with us for a weekend. And uh, man, just awesome. It's been a long time since I've had a little pitter-patter of little feet in my house because my kids are... Or they're older. And so, um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're just older. And uh, they, these two little girls, one of them, the older one called me driver because I, I drove her everywhere. Hey, driver. <laughs> hey, driver. Uh, where are we going today? The, the other little one, she started to say, hey, where's, where's the dad? Wow. It'll melt your heart. As we get into the scripture the, the shift in this goes from, I'm, I'm no longer condemned, but not only that, I have a dad. I have a father that I can run to even when I'm broken. I have a father that I can run to even when I'm, I feel lost, when I feel dilapidated, when I feel unsanitary, when I feel inadequate. There's a father who has open arms. What a good and gracious king. All right, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into scripture. Gracious Father, I thank you so much for your word. It is truth. It is life. It is how you speak to us, how you confirm your love for us and your grace and your mercy for us. And Father, it is through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that all of scripture points us to knowing Jesus. Father, today I pray as we get into your word that you would reveal to us the assurance we have of our salvation, that we would see that you are a good and gracious king and that you are a loving father who welcomes us with open arms. Father, we thank you for your spirit that indwells us, that gives us power over the enemy, over the flesh. Father, I pray for those who don't know you, who would hear these words, that you would draw them by your spirit, draw them into salvation and that you would regenerate their heart from the inside out, and they would never be the same. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Amen. Let's pick up verse 9. If you follow along with me, I'll go to 17. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. I'm going to continue with this idea of we got good news, believer. We got good news. You have a new spirit. Not only have you been given a new status, no condemnation. Not only have you now have a new standard of keeping your mind and your eyes fixed on the spirit, not on the flesh. But now he is going the next step and he's giving you a new spirit that is going to make you able to do these things. You have been filled with his very own presence. Verse nine, you, however, if you are a believer in Christ, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So basically he says right here, listen, if you have the spirit, you're saved. If you don't have the spirit, you're still unregenerate. There's, there's two camps that you can be in in this. And it's like you either have the spirit dwelling in you or you don't have the spirit dwelling in you. And so he says the word dwells, which means he's not an occasional visitor that comes in to just check on things. No, he's moved in and he's a permanent resident in your life and heart. This is the promise that we have in salvation, that the spirit of God dwells in those whom God has regenerated. He's moved in. He's purchased you with the blood of Christ. And now he gives you his spirit as a helper. But if you reject the spirit of Christ, you are still unregenerate. And so this is what Paul is saying. Listen, if you're a believer, you have the spirit. But if you're not a believer, you still live in the flesh. And so those who are still in the flesh, who are not believers in Christ, who have not submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, they are still at a point of rejecting him. So unbelievers live with actions and attitudes that blaspheme the Holy Spirit. One of the most scary verses in all of scripture is this one right here in Matthew 12, 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin of blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now when I was a kid, I was really really struck by this one. I thought it meant making fun of stuff. And so I was like, Oh no, have I, have I blasphemed the spirit? Have I made fun of him? Am I gonna, am I forgiven? And I would wrestle with that, but that's not what it means. It means rejection. Like if you've blasphemed, if you've totally rejected the spirit of Christ, if you said, I don't want Christ, I reject him, then that is unforgivable because it separates you from God for all of eternity because there's only one way into heaven and that's through the son, Jesus Christ, right? So those who live apart from Christ, those who have rejected the spirit, blaspheme the spirit. But if we have received the Spirit, He dwells in us permanently. So what happens when we have actions and attitudes that go against the Spirit? Well, as a believer, we sometimes will live with actions and attitudes that grieve the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that you lose the Holy Spirit. It means that you've grieved the Holy Spirit and Even Ephesians 4.30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Listen, you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Spirit. The word grieve here, it's just, it's so deep. I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon on this. He says, there is something very touching in this admonition. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. It does not say, do not make him angry. A more delicate and tender term is used. Grieve him not. There are some men of so hard a character that to make another angry does not give them much pain. 
And indeed, there are many of us who are scarcely to be moved by the information that another is angry with us. But where is the heart so hard that it is not moved when we know that we have caused someone grief? For grief is a sweet combination of anger and of love. It is anger, but all the gall is taken from it. Love sweetens the anger and turns the edge of it not against the person, but against the offense. I know that's a huge long quote, but let me, let me just sum that up to you. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, there's this sweet combination of both anger and love that takes place in the person of the Holy Spirit to where the anger is not towards the person who is in Christ, but towards the sin who has caused such grief. And so when you grieve the Spirit, he's not angry with you. He's grieved by what has taken place. And the offense is not on the person, but on the action that has taken place. I can, I can read this to you and I can explain this to you and even you now understand what grief looks like. I'm angry. But I'm not angry at the person. I'm grieved. I'm grieved by it. I'm grieved by the offense. And when we grieve the Spirit, it should grieve us. That we should be angry at the offense. As John Owen put it, What have I done? What love, mercy, what blood, and what grace have I despised and trampled on? When we allow sin to enter into our life, we grieve the Holy Spirit, and we are met with this idea of what have I done? I've trampled underfoot the love, mercy, blood, and grace of Jesus Christ with my actions. Is this the return I make to the Father for his love? Is this what I give back? To the Son for His blood, to the Holy Spirit for His grace? Do I thus requite the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? Do I account communion with Him of so little value? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the very purpose of His death? As we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, but it also should grieve us. What have I done? Do I account communion with with the spirit of so little value that I would just run off towards the flesh? That's grief. Believers also who have the Holy Spirit dwelling among them, sometimes, within them, sometimes live with actions and attitudes that quench the Holy Spirit. So you can grieve the Holy Spirit, you can quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. Quenching is the idea of suppressing a fire. The Holy Spirit is often referred to as a fire throughout Scripture. His presence is a flame. The Holy Spirit wants to intensify His presence within us, to inflame our hearts, to fill us with the warmth and assurance of His indwelling power. He wants to fill us with such power and such warmth that we have assurance of our salvation. And He wants to help us with that power. When we pursue the flesh, however, when we sin, we don't lose the spirit, but we do grieve the spirit. We quench the spirit. We stifle the spirit and his power in our life. In fact, sin drenches the flame and reduces our conviction, our intimacy, and our burning desire to follow Christ. You, you know that all too well. I know that all too well, that even, even after salvation, if I allow sin into my life, there's this part of me that's just 
dumping water on the flame of the spirit, just trying to put him out so I don't feel the conviction in my life. So I don't feel that burning grief of intimacy where I've, I've trampled underfoot his grace. This is what we do with sin. We're just trying to, we're trying to minimize the flame in our life. And it's not too long until we say, you know what, I just don't even know if I want to follow Christ anymore because of the sins and how I feel. This is why Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 7, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands, of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fan into flame. One of my uh, camp trips with my son, we, we hiked into this, this bald, this mountain bald, right? And, and this was the first time that we had ever hiked three to six miles. It felt like, you know, it felt like 20 miles, right? And this is the first time we'd ever done that. And it was, to be honest, it was the last time we ever did it. But we hiked in and when we got to the mountaintop, there's the, co- the clouds had already moved in. It was all, everything was wet and we had to start a fire. And we had this little special fire starter. It looked like a Mentos, right? I don't know, just what came to my mind. And so we put that little Mentos fire starter in the wet wood and lit it. And then we started to go, let's fan into flame the spirit of God that is indwelling you. Listen, you might feel drenched. You might feel wet. You might feel sorrowful. You might feel rejected, but you're not. You have the spirit of God dwelling in you. And I would encourage you, church, to fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. See, by quenching and grieving the spirit, we hinder godly lifestyle. And there's no degrees of having the Holy Spirit, but there are degrees of how much you are allowing the spirit to have your heart. Because if you are in Christ, you have been given his spirit. So let me ask you, how much of your heart are you allowing the spirit to have right now? But if Christ is in you, verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, this is some fantastic news. Let me put it this way. If the same spirit that raised Jesus' dead body from the grave lives in you, then that same spirit can certainly conquer the body of death that seeks to lead you back into sin. Yeah, let me say it this way. If the same spirit that raised Christ and defeated the grave in the flesh lives in you, then certainly the same spirit can defeat the sin in the flesh that you're struggling with right now. You have been given a new spirit. There is a new power that is now dwelling in you. You no longer have to live in the pattern of flesh like you once did. You can live in newness of life because of the regeneration of Christ in you, the Holy Spirit. Amen? I know you're shocked. I got fired up, okay? But you can say amen back. You see, being a Christian is not about rule following. It's not about self-improvement. And, and, and so, much, so much of what we do focuses on that. We focus on, oh, that's not the right thing to do. You better not do that. That's wrong. That's the rule following, rule following. So much of it is, man, I just need to be a better person. God's going to help me be a better person. I'm going to be a better this. I'm going to be a better that. That's not what Christianity is about. That's what religion's about. Religion's all about following rules and self-improvement. 
And you can follow rules and have self-improvement and still reject the spirit of God in your life. It's about surrendering to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that has been given you. We all need to come to a point where we realize, am I fixating my mind on the things of the spirit or am I fixating my mind on the things of the flesh? I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. I want to fan into flame the gift that he's given me that gives me the power to conquer and say no to the things that want to pull me back. This is the hope that we have, Colossians 1.27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Listen, if you're in Christ, you have hope. You have hope to conquer the sins that are in your life. So I've got good news. I've got more good news. You ready for the next good news? I've got good news, believer. You have a new sonship. Not only have you been given a new spirit, but now you've been given a new sonship. He says here, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You owe nothing to the flesh. You don't have to continue in the pattern of life that you once lived. You don't have to continue in sin. You don't have to say yes to the temptation. You don't have to do any of that because you've been given a new spirit. We are no longer under obligation to the flesh, but we are under obligation to God and his grace and what he's done for us. It's a moral obligation. A moral obligation, as I was studying it, is a duty which one owes and which he ought to perform, but which he's not legally bound to fulfill. You, believer, are no longer under the law. You're under grace. Now there's this moral obligation of what Christ has done for me and how he's purchased me and now he's filled me with his spirit. I'm under obligation to give my life to him. So, so I, I looked up how to explain moral obligation to you and one apologist said it this way. Imagine you're sitting in a Chinese restaurant. Man, doesn't that sound good right now? Imagine you're sitting in a Chinese restaurant and you've ordered your sweet and sour chicken, right? Because that's, that's entry level, right? That's entry level. And you open up your little fortune cookie and it says, get up and move your seat right now. Now, some of you are crazy enough to think that that's what you're supposed to do. But let me tell you, I'm going to tell you, you don't have to do what the fortune cookie says and it has no power over you. And it's, it's really not even going to tell you the truth or the future, okay? I'm just going to put that out there. Just need to, just need to... <laughs> Clean that up real quick, all right? So, so you read that and you go, well, that one's dumb, right? And you throw it, like, that was, I, I don't need that one. Okay, so let's say you're sitting there, you've ordered your sweet and sour chicken, and the lady in the table next to you goes, hey, I need you to move your seat. I don't like looking at you. Okay, well, I'm sorry you don't like looking at me, but I, I feel no obligation to move my seat for you. I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna move my seat. Now imagine an FBI agent who's undercover comes in and says, hey, I'm going to need your seat because we're about to take down this restaurant and your seat's the perfect seat for me to do that, okay? You're going to go, oh, well, then by all means, I'll move my seat. Like I feel obligated to, to help you out in this, in this sting operation that I've now become a part of, right? <laughs> Let me see if I can make this spiritual. We are indebted to Christ and the Spirit to surrender our seat of authority in our life so that he can accomplish what he needs to do in our life. So when the Spirit says, I need you to relinquish your seat of control, 
you are morally obligated to say, all right, it's yours. It's yours. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, we've already been given one responsibility back in verse 5. I've already read it. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So, in sanctification, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Here's the next step in that. Put to death the deeds of the body. Start putting to death sin. If you don't put to death sin and the sinful nature, you will allow it to prosper and to grow, and it will only bring death. Sin always brings death. The wages of sin is death, so be about killing sin before it kills you. Or as John Owen put it, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Many, many times the believer doesn't fully put to death the sins that are in their life. And they always bring death, death of holiness. We are to be pursuing holiness and righteousness and faith and love. And as we allow sin to grow, and if we don't put those things to death, let me tell you, it's going to bring, it's going to bring death to your holiness, your pursuit of righteousness. It's going to hinder your walk with the Lord. It'll bring death to happiness. Sin promises to be sweet, but you and I both know that it is sour when it hits the stomach. It promises to be sweet, but man, it's going to make you sick. It brings death to happiness. It brings death to hopefulness. You and I stand here or sit here today and we have hopes and dreams of the future of what God can accomplish in and through us for his glory. And listen, when we allow the flesh to, to grow, it brings to death some of those hopes that we have. And it brings death to your home. Our sins, as much as the enemy would like to make us believe, are not private. They have ripple effects that affect everyone in the public. It brings death. It causes grief. As James would say in chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Brings forth death. We need to be killing the sin before it grows. It, it reminds me of the illustration of having mold in your house. I think I've used this one before. But if, if you know that there's black mold in your house, <clears throat> you got to do something about it. you got to be killing the mold before the mold kills you, Right? But if you see just a little speck of mold, you're going to be like, ah, I'm going to have to get to that later. You know, eventually I'm going to, I'm going to have to cut out all that sheetrock or I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to really take care of this. But sometimes we, we wait and it grows. And when it grows, we decide, you know what? I'm going to have to just paint over that. I'm just going to, I'm just going to take some paint. I'm going to touch it up. No one's going to know. I'm just going to, I'm just going to cover it. And then as it grows, the smell begins to come into the house. And you go, oh, man, I'm going to have to buy some more scented candles. It's starting to get bad. I'm going to have to buy some scented candles. I bought another thing of Febreze. And then it begins to grow and it gets on your furniture. And you're like, oh, I'm going to just have to buy a new couch. All right, so I'm just going to buy a new couch. And one of these days, I'm going to handle the mold issue. Don't you think you should be killing the mold early on before it has effects in all the areas of your life? 
This is the practical application. Kill sin before it kills you. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones put. It is here for the first time in this chapter that we come to the real or the realm of practical application. All we have had up to this point has been the general description of the Christian, his character, his position. But now the apostle has really come explicitly to the doctrine of sanctification. Here we're told exactly how, in practice, the Christian becomes sanctified. Or to state it differently, here we are told in detail and in practice how the Christian is to wage the battle against sin. How do we wage a battle against the flesh? We have to starve it to death. We must put to death the things that bring death. And that means we have to starve the old man. Don't set your mind on the things of the flesh. Don't feed it. Don't allow it to have nourishment in your life. You see, the more you feed the flesh with things and images and thoughts and desires and actions that are contrary to the spirit, the stronger you are making the flesh. But a cutting off or a putting to death the flesh is done by starving it out. The starvation of the flesh is a long process of weakening its power over you. And here's the issue for many, is that once we have starved the flesh for so long, we begin to feel that it is no longer a threat. It's such a weakened state that we lower our guard against it. And once again, we begin to allow things to enter our life that feed it one morsel at a time until it has reared its ugly head and it's come back with a vengeance. Put to death the things of the flesh. The more you put to death the sinful nature, the more you will enjoy the spiritual life that the Holy Spirit gives. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here is the state of grace. Here's the moment where we have assurance of our salvation because you are now a child. You have been adopted in. You have been led by the Spirit, and that is how you know if the Spirit indwells you because He is leading you. Being led by the Spirit does not mean that you are trying to make a decision. Should I move here? Should I take this job? I wonder what the Spirit's leading me to do. I mean, that's kind of great. But when you talk about being led by the Spirit in Scripture, it's always being, being led in sanctification. So as you make decisions, you have to ask yourself, is the decision I'm about to make going to aid in my sanctification or is it going to hinder my sanctification? 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. You may tell you what God's will is for your life and what being led by the Spirit is. It's your sanctification, that you would learn how to control your body and holiness and honor. 
not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. When we disregard putting to death things of the flesh, when we disregard being led by the Spirit, we're not disregarding a person. We're disregarding the Spirit whom God has given us. We disregard God. God, I know what you want me to do, but I think I know better. That's not being led by the Spirit. So we can't say that the Spirit is leading us to do something that would work against our sanctification and holiness. At no point can you say, I feel like God's leading me to do this if it's leading you away from sanctification. Where the Spirit leads and guides us is always along paths of righteousness. So we are his children. We have a new sonship. Galatians 4, 3 through 7. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So not only did he come to die in our place so that we could be adopted, but now he's given us his very own spirit so that we can even cry out to the father in an intimate relationship with him. We've been given a new spirit. We have a new sonship. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. You do not have to fall back into sin, Christian. And if a son, then an heir through God. The idea of adoption for the Romans was was probably very understandable. In the Roman Empire, probably more than half the population at that time were slaves. And at any point, no matter what age, you could be 40 years old, the master of the house could look at you and decide, I adopt you. The master could make a legal decision to choose you as his child. That means your old name is long, no longer your name. You've been given a new name. Your debts are no longer your debts. He's paid your debts in full. And now you can live in the house, not as a slave, but as a son with a new status. Listen, this is what God has done. He has adopted us. He has chosen us. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are brought into the house of God. So we have a new identity in God. If you are in Christ and the Spirit now dwells in you, you are his temple. You are his dwelling place. You are his people. He welcomes you in as a father welcomes in their child because you are his sons and his daughters. You have a new identity And you have a new intimacy with God. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's a a bearing witness to, there's a confirming that takes place from the Holy Spirit and our spirit. We are his children because he is so intimately involved in our hearts and in our lives. We no longer have to live in fear, but we can find security, love, and safety in the arms of the Father. And the Spirit testifies to this. It's the beautiful picture of adoption. 
where a child is chosen, he's brought into, they brought, they've been brought into the home, and they no longer have to live in fear. And that first night when they go to their bedroom and the lights are turned out and they get scared, they have a, they have a father and a mother right down the hallway they can, run, they can run to and find security. Listen, when we're brought into the family of God, there are times when we have fear, when we have doubt, when we have struggles, when we feel alone, but there is always a father that we can cry to and we can run to. Abba, Father, I need you. This is the beautiful picture of the intimacy that we have with God. And the Spirit confirms this. How does the Spirit confirm this? Now we have a deep feeling in our spirit of conviction of the Holy Spirit that communicates to us, get this, by his word, with his word, through his word, and never in opposition to his word. You know how the Spirit confirms that you're a child of God? By spending time in this and hearing him speak to you. The Spirit will make the words of this Bible come alive in your hearts. He will speak to you in ways that you've never imagined that he could speak to you. It is as if you've read that same passage a thousand times, but today he, he talked to me. He met me right where I am. And he confirms it with his word. So if you want to experience intimacy with the spirit, you must be immersed in his word. And the final one, you have a new inheritance from God. Our inheritance is not a matter of doing. It's a matter of belonging. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. It's difficult to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's difficult to move into that responsibility that we have of fixing our hearts and minds on the things of the spirit and then putting to death the things that we know shouldn't be there. Sometimes that's a responsibility and sometimes it's hard work and sometimes we suffer along doing that. But we will share in the resurrection of Christ and his glory. Part of the suffering means the process of discipline. When we fall and when we fail, we have a father who disciplines us. He doesn't condemn us. He disciplines us. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of death of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the Spirit's and live, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit 
of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As children, we submit ourselves to the discipline of the Lord. We submit ourselves to the training and righteousness so that he can produce in us a fruit that we are incapable of producing ourselves. I got good news. You're not alone. You've been given a new spirit. And not only that, but you have received a sonship, an intimacy, an inheritance with the Lord. Let's pray.